Right on. So we come to the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. Um, some visitors here this morning, and so we've just been working through this this series in Thessalonians. And last week, as we got into the second letter, we saw that uh, this church that had been just a model church, and that whom Paul had really plugged and spoken well of in his first letter continued to do so except there was one issue that had crept into the church and where in his first letter he had uh, commended them for their work of faith he commended them for their labor of love he could he had commended them as being a people who steadfast steadfastly held to the hope uh, that they had in christ uh, between the, the first and second letter, a time about a year passed, and different teachers had crept into the church, and different things uh, were going on, and the church had lost their sense of hope. Again, he commends them for their love. Again, he commends them for their faith. But this time, he doesn't mention hope. And so it just seems to be this theme in the second letter that Paul wants to talk about hope. He, he wants to encourage the church and... Uh, and uh, re-inspire their hope in the Lord. And we talked about the fact, and there's been this theme throughout the Thessalonian letters, that following Jesus doesn't mean that life is easy. Uh, and for the Thessalonians, after Paul's first letter, what happened for them was the persecution actually increased. The, the heat got turned up on them, and into their midst slipped people who taught them and who were teaching them and even proclaiming to them uh, that they were actually living in the time of the day of the Lord, that uh, they were living in the midst of the tribulation. And so as you can imagine, the, the church was deeply shaken in their hearts and mind by this teaching. Now, I, I don't know if this is true for all of you. I don't know if it's true for everybody that grew up in the church. But, you know, uh, the circle of churches that I grew up in and my experience, and when I talk to um, friends that I have that are of the same age group that grew up in the same circle, there's this this common theme that we had this fear that somehow we had missed the rapture. Anybody else grow up with that fear? You know, I was born in the 70s, and that movie came out, you know, A Thief in the Night. Do you remember those movies? And as a little kid, we watched those at church. That was really inspiring. You know, for the rest of my life, every any time I enter a kitchen and see a pot of boiling water unattended, I think, oh, no, I've been left behind. <laughs> But it's funny, like seriously, I talk to people of my generation and it's a, a, a real fear, something that shook us in our hearts and in our minds uh, that we had missed the rapture, you know, at various times. Still, even now, you know, once in a while. You know. The rapture is called the blessed hope, the coming of Jesus Christ for his church and the steadfastness of the Thessalonians, in that hope had been shaken. And they were asking questions. Has God changed the program? You know, did Paul promise us deliverance from the tribulation? And now, you know, God's changed the plan, changed the agenda. Was Paul wrong? And so to calm uh, their fears, to stabilize their faith, um, to bring back that sense of hope, Paul is going to explain to them that they are not living in the midst of a time called the day of the Lord. And the reason that he could do so was that there were certain 
certain things that need to take place before that day ever comes. And so Paul's going to talk to us in this uh, second letter about that, about some of those things. And so the conversation this morning is, it is Bible prophecy. Now, you know, Bible prophecy is, it's always fascinating, but there can also be a bit of an attitude that we uh, pack towards it, you know, where we want to resist it because we say, well, it's speculative, it's, it's guesswork, it's conjecture. And, you know, we can be prone even as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's certainly a sense that as the last days approach that there will be more of this in the church that, that we're just prone to roll our eyes and harden our hearts. And so this morning as we get into this, I, I want to remind you that Bible prophecy is not about making a calendar. You know, it's not about laying out a calendar and do, 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 do. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to build character. Paul's talking about hope here. And so he talks about these things so that God's people would have hope. His goal is not to lay out a calendar for the Thessalonians. His goal is so that the church, through a growing knowledge and understanding of Bible prophecy, so that the church, through a growing knowledge and understanding of what the day of the Lord is and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, that, that rather than speculate, that they would be strengthened in their character and in their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, when Jesus' coming is mentioned, as a church, as God's people, as individuals, you, you know, there should be this sense that internally, uh, spiritually, where, where hope swells when we talk about the coming of Jesus. Where, where the heart kind of it leaps for a moment. Because we know that when Jesus comes, he will put all things right. When Jesus comes, he will take his church with him, and they, we will be with him in his presence forever. You know, when we talk about the second coming, uh, we want our hearts so gripped with that hope that our lips profess, come, Lord Jesus, come in prayer. And so Paul here, as he starts, he's going to give them a little bit of corrective teaching. Verses 1 through 5, I would call corrective teaching. And so he says this in verse 1. Let's check it out. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So here's the topic he wants to correct the church in. It's the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. What we refer to as Christians as the rapture. Okay, you know, now, just like Elvis Presley, this church was all shook up. Literally, they're shaken out of their minds. That's that's the picture here. You know, picture in your mind, the disciples in their boat on the Sea of Galilee. The waves are pounding them. The wind is blowing. They are being tossed and they're filled with fear. And they're shaken. And in the same sense, this church was going through a similar experience. They're not literally on a sea, but it was happening in their hearts. It was happening in their minds, and they were not excited about the coming of the Lord. And, and Paul's message to them to start off here is essentially this. Calm down, guys. Chill out. You know, false teachers had worked their way into this church. They had manipulated their way into the church. And Paul says, you know, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed. 
you know, by a spirit. In other words, a false prophecy. Or by a spoken word, a false teaching. Or by some letter seeming to be from us. Obviously, there was a forged, at least one forged letter floating around with this church. Uh, that was stating to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And so he says, calm down, don't be quickly shaken. Why? Well, in his first letter to this church, Paul had taught them that the Lord Jesus would return and that the church would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, what we call the rapture. And this coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him is not... Uh, two separate events, but one, as Paul's talking about this, we, we know from the scripture that the, the Lord will come for his church like a thief comes in the night, and suddenly, without warning, the church will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with him forever. As we talk about the day of the Lord, you know, as we explain when we were in First Thessalonians, we understand that there's, there's this coming of Jesus as a thief in the night where he takes his church and they're snatched up. And there's the coming of Jesus where he returns to the earth as the conquering king. Their book ends on the tribulation. And so, you know, once, uh, and, and so as we talk about the day of the Lord, we've, we've got to see it not as a 24-hour day. You know, we've been going through Genesis and just been having great discussion in Genesis about, about creation, about Genesis chapter 1. And some of the things that are in the scripture flagging the fact that that is a 24-hour day. But when we talk about prophecy, and those things are missing to define this day as a 24-hour day. It is a, a period of time, a seven-year period of time, the day of the Lord. And so, uh, to this church, Paul says, calm down, guys. Don't be quickly shaken. The Lord is coming. Now, you know, what Paul's going to talk about here is uh, about what happens on the earth once the church is out of the way and Satan and his forces uh, unleash their program upon the world and God will begin to pour out various judgments that are prophesied in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And it's that time that we call the tribulation, the great tribulation, that time, the day of the Lord. Now, check out verse 3. He says this, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul's going to talk about two things that need to happen first. Uh, he says, first of all, the rebellion comes first. Now, let me explain this again. Paul, Paul as he describes these events, um, what he is talking about here are events that are, the, that are concrete evidence of the great tribulation. Events that make it certain the day of the Lord is upon us. He says, the, unless the falling away comes. The ancient word for falling away is apostasy, apostos. It, it indicates rebellion or a departure. You know, Bible scholars debate all about what that means. I, I had kind of fun researching it this week because I was looking at just all the different Bible translations and how that word is even translated uh, in, this, in this passage and in the different translations. And 
in uh, our ESV here, it says this. Sorry. It calls it the rebellion. Other versions call it the falling away. Other versions call it the departure. And, and Bible scholars debate and wrestle through that word and question what it means. But nevertheless, uh, you know, Paul's point is clear. You know, they're worried about the coming of the great tribulation. They're worried that they've missed the rapture. And Paul says clearly, we're not in the great tribulation because we haven't seen the falling away. Just defining it as not a falling away, but the falling away. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 24. When he talked about the end of days, he said that the day will come when many will fall away. And one will betray another and hate another. And many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. Because lawless, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Look, there is a day coming. When the love of many in the church are going to grow cold, is going to grow cold for the things of the Lord. The second thing Paul talks about here is the man of lawlessness. He tells the church, look, the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. So we're not living in the time of tribulation. Now, the man of lawlessness, that's a title Paul uses for this guy. Paul doesn't use the title that the apostle John used. John called him the Antichrist. The, uh, that's the term he used. The Antichrist is that name by which we identify this last great world dictator. Paul calls him here, yeah, the man of lawlessness. He, other versions say the man of sin, the son of destruction, the, the son of perdition. I like that title. The son of perdition. That, uh, in the Greek, that title Antichrist, that word anti has two meanings. It means this, against, but also it means this, instead of. The Antichrist is not only against Jesus, but he wants to be worshipped instead of the Lord Jesus. Now, obviously, he is inspired and empowered by Satan. And because, you know, uh, he ultimately uh, reflects the desires of Satan, he himself wants to be worshipped as a god, just like Satan, Lucifer, wanted to be worshipped in place of God. Now, the Bible tells us a lot about the Antichrist. First of all, you know, from this text, he is a man. The word here is anthropos. He is, he is a man. You know, many Bible teachers in, in days of old, or even some people take this perspective that the Antichrist refers to an office, you know, and in, in back in the days of the Reformation, those teachers would point and they'd say, look at the Catholic Church. They'd point at the Pope, and they'd say, that is the office of the Antichrist, and they'd see a succession. But the text here is clear that it's actually a man, not an office. Of course, there's a spirit against Jesus. There is an Antichrist spirit in the world, but there is one man who will come. Daniel talked about the one man. Jesus talked about the one man. Paul talked about the one man. The apostle John identified him as a man. It's one man. And Revelation chapter 6 tells us that he will be a peacemaker, a peaceful politician who will seemingly, you know, come onto the, the geopolitical scene of the world as one on a white horse, being this great 
you know, peacemaker and a time of peace will be brought upon uh, the earth as never has before been through his leadership. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that he will make a covenant with the people of Israel to protect them. Tells us that he will allow them to rebuild the temple. And, or that covenant will give them the freedom to do that, the covenant of peace. And it will be a covenant that will be signed with the nation of Israel for seven years. And Israel will rebuild the temple and it will happen during peaceful times. You know, this, this Middle East crisis that we watch every day in the news, it's just amazing to see what's going on there. It will be. To consider, you know, for those of us that were just in Israel, I mean, it's just like, this is awesome when you talk about this because we were there. We were standing in those spots, you know. There's the great discussion about where is the temple going to be? Where's it going to go up? You know, we went to the Temple Institute. Here's this group of people who for decades have been planning and putting everything in place for the temple to be rebuilt. Look, you know, I think about when Solomon built the temple. I was reading about that in my quiet time this week. You know, and I was thinking, you know the story in Second. Uh, or in the first Kings about how long it took Solomon to build the temple and how long it took him to build his house. And people always slam him and they say, wow, I know I can't re recall exactly because I'm shooting off the hip here. I can't recall exactly how long it took to build the temple, but it was almost twice as long to build his house, if not more. And, um, but the thing was that in regards to the building of the temple, David had been preparing for Solomon already. We forget that. We forget that David laid out the plans. David got the workers going. Things were rolling already. So when Solomon came on the scene, onto the scene, he took over a machine that was already at work. And boom, it went up fast. In Israel today, there are people preparing for a temple to go up. Things are in place. You know, we, we, they're, they're training priests. You know, we saw the garments. We saw the different instruments. We saw them. When, we stood before the great menorah, you know, 54 kilos of gold getting ready to go up onto that temple mount. It's going to go up. And as we sat in the Temple Institute, you know, these, these folks began to share with us um, the problem that exists, obviously, the Temple Mount is under the control of, of uh, the Muslims. And there's the Dome of the Rock there. And, they, and, and these Orthodox Jews shared with us and they said that that dome is in the spot where the temple needs to go. It's in the way. It's got to come down. But, you know, uh, Bible... Prophets, and I believe the, the Antichrist will come on the scene and he's going to offer a solution because many suggest that where the Dome of the Rock sits is not actually the spot where the temple should go. That the temple should be slightly north. And we saw this spot called the Dome of the Spirits where many believe that is the spot where the Holy of Holies was. rebuild and when it happens it will go up fast and the scripture alludes to the fact that those two dome of the rock and the temple could exist side by side 
And the Institute of the Sacrifices will again start. But Daniel 9 warns us, uh, Daniel 9 warns us that halfway through that seven-year peace agreement that the Antichrist will break that peace agreement and he himself, as we just read the words of Paul, will exalt himself above every so-called God. He will exalt himself above every object of worship and he will go into the Holy of Holies and he will take a seat in the temple of God and he will proclaim himself to be God. Jesus too said this would happen in Matthew 24. It's called the abomination of desolation. Of course, in history, there is, there is a typology of this happening already with Antiochus Epiphanes. He did this. But it's going to happen again with a man who is the Antichrist. And Revelation chapter 13 tells us that it will happen that during that second half of the seven-year seven peace agreement, after he, causes, he does this abomination that causes desolation, a time of intense persecution and tribulation will happen upon the face of the earth that has never been seen before or, or will ever be seen uh, again afterwards. Satan's wrath will be vented against Israel. Satan's wrath will be vented against those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ during the great tribulation. And, and the Lord himself will begin to pour out judgments upon uh, those, who, those earth dwellers who reject him. You know, the scripture tells us that during that time, the Antichrist will implement an economic system where the citizens of the world will only be able to buy and sell if they have the mark of the beast. Now, I just think, man, will that really happen? Like, you know, people tell I watched the movie when I was a kid, man. Ah, I watched those UN trucks driving around in that movie. I'll never forget it. Chasing the Christian, and it's like, ah. Should I jump off the dam and kill myself or be arrested and killed by these guys? That's imprinted on my mind as a child. <laughs> Will it really happen? Well, you know, as, you know, we can just see, I mean, just look at the world. We are increasingly getting closer to a one-world economic system. I've just been blown away lately by the latest thing that I've been doing, you know, with my bank card. Just tap, no pins, no numbers, no nothing, just a little tap. Transaction happens. My bank account's debited. Better start paying a lot more closer attention to our bank statements. It's already in our card to your right hand, to your forehead. You know, we just need a one-world economy, and we could see the potential of that happening. You know, just wait till maybe America goes through its final financial collapse. Maybe it will be so considerable and substantial that it'll just dictate that the world has to do a financial restructure and reorganization. Look, the final dominoes are getting set up. And the finger of God will one day, and they will all collapse, and it will happen fast. Now, during the Great Tribulation, Revelation tells us much that many will come to faith in Jesus Christ. There, as much as there is a great turning away, there will also be a, a great revival. Many will come to faith in Lord Jesus. And believers who at that time who refused to bow down and worship the Antichrist, believers who refuse to receive the mark of the beast will die as martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this Antichrist, the son of perdition, 
the son of destruction. Uh, there's one other person actually in the scripture. Interesting enough, there's one other person in the scripture who was called the son of destruction, the son of perdition. You know who that was? Judas Iscariot. He also had that title. See, the same spirit that so filled Judas to betray the Lord will also motivate and control the Antichrist. You know, remember when Mary took that bottle of perfume and she anointed the Lord's feet and she washed his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair and and Judas piped up and he said, what a waste. What a waste. That perfume could have been sold and given the money to the poor. But what Mary, you know, Jesus rebuked him. He rebuked him. See, nothing given to the Lord is ever a waste. You think what you're giving to the Lord in your life, whether it be your time, your, your finances, your service, I'm telling you, nothing given to the Lord is ever a waste. And Jim Elliott, that missionary to the Aka Indians, who died as a martyr at their hands, wrote in his journal, those are those famous words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's never a waste to serve the Lord. The Jim, Elliot, he, he had big picture thinking. And that's what the church needs to have. So that we have big picture thinking. Now the son of perdition, the son of destruction, Nature similar to that of his father. The son of. Just like Satan. You know, it's interesting when you compare just the Antichrist and the Lord Jesus, you, you, you contrast them. It's like Satan is setting up everything to mimic Jesus. You know, Jesus is coming. He came and we read in the scripture that he came as righteous that he was just, that he, when he comes with him, he will have salvation, that he is lowly and he is meek. Whereas we read the Antichrist, he's, he's a man of lawlessness. He's not righteous. He's not just. He's lawless. Lawlessness is, is sin. That's what the scripture says. He is the man of sin. He's the son of destruction. He doesn't bring with him salvation. He brings with him destruction. Jesus came meek and lowly, and you think about him, and he was always pointing people to the Father, to the Father, to the Father. The Antichrist comes, and he exalts himself. He says, worship me. Now, some of you might be thinking, man, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why the church spends time teaching some of this stuff, but I think the next verse is fascinating. You know, if you think that this is too much to have these kind of conversations and to talk about Bible prophecy, then you really need to read the next verse because look what it says. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, does anybody recall how long Paul was with the Thessalonians? Three weeks. Three weeks. He established a church, brand new baby Christians. And what did Paul teach them? He taught them. These things. 
right off the hop. Uh, Paul taught this stuff about the Antichrist and about the coming of Jesus to new Christians. It's, it's not something that we should think is, is out of reach or something that we couldn't discuss. And so now Paul's going to talk further. He's going to talk about... And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. He says this, you know what's holding him back. And you know, the same is true for you. You know what is restraining and holding back evil and lawlessness. And you might say, no, I don't. I don't. What, what is it? I don't know what restrains him. I don't know what restrains evil. Well, let me ask you this. What is it, or better, or better yet, who is it that restrains you from being lawless? It's the Holy Spirit. The one thing restraining sin, the one thing restraining lawlessness and keeping any form of sanity on this world, the one thing that, that is keeping, the one person who is keeping any order on this planet is the Holy Spirit. And you know, yourselves are God's temple, Paul said, and, and that God's spirit lives in you. You know, so often people, even Christians or, or so-called Christians, love to take pot shots at the church. And don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not confused. The church is not perfect. Let me see. Once I showed up, it got wrecked. Once you showed up, it got wrecked. The church isn't perfect. She has her weaknesses. Sometimes she seems like a failure. But don't make the mistake of underestimating the church. I mean, as Christians, we should hold the body of Christ in very, very high regard. This is the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Don't diminish. Don't miscalculate. Even the value of what is happening here this morning, you know, one of my favorite things, you know why sometimes coffee break goes long? This morning, fellowshipping, drinking your coffee, talking about life, worshiping Jesus, here together, gathered around the word. Don't make the mistake of undervaluing, underrating, trivializing the, the gathering of God's people. See, the presence of the church is delaying the judgment of God. The presence of God's salt of the earth. Not only does the church have tremendous And it preserves the world from God, from his judgment. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. See, the presence of the church in this world gives unsaved people the opportunity to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might get saved and might find salvation in Jesus. The presence of the church is, is so that people would be drawn out of darkness and into light. You know, think about Lot. 
Not a perfect man, but a man who was dedicated to the Lord living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And his presence there delayed the coming judgment of God. The church does the same thing. And before God brought his judgment, he took Lot out. See, we talk about the preserving nature of the church and the preserving work of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, convicts the world in regards to sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. But when the church is removed from the earth, when the church is raptured, when the church is caught up to meet the Lord together in the air, then the presence of the Holy Spirit as a restraining force will be lifted off the face of the earth. Well, he'll still convict the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. But the man of lawlessness will come, and he will live a lawless life, and he will promote lawlessness, and the Spirit of God will not restrain it. Man will pursue every inkling of his heart. You know, Acts chapter 2 tells us the account of the Holy Spirit falling upon the church and what happened. But think about when the church goes, he'll go with them. You know, think for a moment how the Holy Spirit restrains you. You know, not often, but once in a while I think about murdering people. My kids, you know. <laughs> no, seriously though, right? We all have thoughts of murder. <laughs> Lying, adultery, stealing, coveting my neighbor's things. I mean, all of us have a heart like that. And except for saving faith in Jesus Christ, you know, I myself would spend an eternity apart from God in hell. But Jesus saved me. He, he filled me with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God is restraining those desires that I have sometimes. <laughs> Not only that, the Spirit of God is changing them and empowering me to live a righteous life for Jesus Christ. Empowering me and you to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Empowering us to live the righteous life rather than for sin. Producing The Spirit of God producing in us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says in Galatians, against such thing, there isn't a law. A mighty power is at work restraining the evil in this world, in both believers and and non-believers. Restraining evil, but remove the church from the equation. Remove the restraining presence of the Holy Spirit, and this world will become a place where mankind... ...Christ himself, who is a lawless man... The the man of sin, the son of perdition, the son of destruction will promote that kind of atmosphere on the earth. He says in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. It's interesting to me that the Bible also talks about that there's a mystery of godliness 
There's a mystery of lawlessness and there's a mystery of godliness. When the Bible talks understand it though that's why it's a mystery there's a mystery of godliness here's the mystery jesus died he was buried he rose from the dead he ascended into heaven and he's coming again that is a mystery it's a revealed mystery but i don't understand it and in the midst of that he saved us Timothy, uh, Paul said to Timothy, said this in, in, in Timothy 3.16, he said, 1 Timothy, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Also a mystery of lawlessness. A lawless nature to mankind that throws off uh, everything that is good, that, that rejects God and his law. Verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You know, I just think about, you know, the question, who is the Antichrist? Who cares? Some of the other options might be, no, don't know, don't care. You know, the Bible gives us some hints, you know, that he's of Jewish descent. Some suggest, you know, that he'd come out of some sort of European nation alliance. There's some suggestion in the scripture that uh, he does not have the desire of women. So some suggest that he's a homosexual. Uh, others would argue you know, that, that actually Jesus is called the desire of women in the scriptures. It's speaking of the longing for salvation and the coming of the Messiah. He's the desire. And so to say that he's not the desire of women, to say he's not the Messiah. So maybe not a homosexual, but an interesting conversation. Look, when Jesus comes, when he returns to the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation, he will come and he will deal with the Antichrist and look what happens. Uh, you know, instead of, you know, the Antichrist, he's against. He's, he's giving himself to the world instead of the Lord. But the Lord will come and there will be no contest. With the word of his mouth, Jesus will destroy him. There's not even a war. You know, you think about Armageddon and all these different things in your mind. Look at Jesus will ascend on the earth and with the word of his mouth, it's all done. It's over. He will come with great will be bound and tossed into a bottomless pit. Now again, it's, it's important that we separate in our hearts and mind the, the coming of Christ in the air to meet his church before the tribulation happens and the return of Christ when his feet touch the earth to defeat Satan and the armies of the world who have gathered against his people. Those are two parts to the coming of Christ. And they're the bookends on that time that we call the day of the Lord. Now verse 9. Wrap it up pretty quick here. I'm not going to go right through the chapter. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. 
with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. I mean, you know, the coming of the lawless one sounds very familiar to me in regards to the coming of Jesus. His first coming, you know, power, signs, wonders. The Antichrist will do. Christ will be empowered by Satan. It will be the activity of Satan. You know, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He said, I only do and say what my father tells me to do. It's amazing to think that Satan can empower people to do signs and wonders. I've been reading this interesting book. It's uh, just testimonies of people who've come out of... uh, Eastern religions, New Age stuff, and just all the mystical dabblings and crazy stuff that they got involved in. And one of the accounts, this guy says, in India, I watched a swami feed 40,000 people. It was a miracle. Look, Satan can empower people to do miracles. And so, you know, that's why we can, you know, we love miracles. I, I I, I pray that you would experience miracles, that God would heal you, that you would have, you know, that the Lord would speak to you, that you would have, you know, God would use you in signs and wonders, that God would use our church in that direction. But, you know, God's people need to handle such things with caution. Not fear. Not where we close the And biblically. You know, nobody saw more signs and wonders than the children of Israel when they were led out of captivity in Egypt as slaves by Moses. I mean, Red Sea parted, you know, Moses striking rocks, there's water, there's just bread coming from heaven, wind blows, birds come. I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet they came to the boundaries of the promised land and their hearts were unbelieving. And God said, fine, don't come in. See, signs and wonders actually don't produce faith. They had all the signs and wonders, and yet they had unbelieving hearts. The scripture tells them, we we talked about this quite a bit last week, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And in the last days, there will be an increase of signs and wonders. And so the question is this, how do you distinguish between the activity of Satan and the genuine work of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is this, that first of all, use the word of God to discern what's going on. But secondly, to ask this question, who is receiving the glory for what is happening? When man is glorified, you be very, 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 very cautious. But where Jesus receives the glory, I think there you find the work of God. John chapter 3 tells us that a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus under the cover of night. Do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus answered Nicodemus and he said to him, Truly, truly, 
I say to you, unless one is born again, he will never uh, see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, okay, you identify that I'm from God, but don't get your heart in the wrong spot. What? Jesus, what are you saying? Can a man enter the womb a second time? Be born? And Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say, unless, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is Spirit. Nicodemus said... How can this be, Jesus? How can that be? And Jesus declared to him those famous words, For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sometimes we so often leave out the rest of that passage, and so I want to read to you, because verse 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Look at, think of this, people loving darkness rather than light. Verse 11, we'll close up here, verse 11 and 12 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Therefore, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Some versions say, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe the lie. What is the lie? It goes all the way back to that first lie that Satan presented to Eve in the garden. You can be as God. That's at the heart of loving darkness. I am my own God. I control my own destiny. I run this life. See, there's really two prayers we could pray. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Or the prayer, my kingdom come, my will be done. And it's sobering what Paul says here, that a person can resist the truth to the point where they become deluded human mind is a powerful thing. It can delude itself and actually believe a lie and say, this is reality. This is true. And to reject Jesus is to reject the truth and to take hold of a lie. What is that lie? You shall be God. The lie is the idea that, that man is his own God. You get to call your own shots, rule your own life, live outside the law. What do you call that? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. And so they believe what 
is false. We know from the word of God that God has a law. That man may live lawless, but he is under a law that God has established. And Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that face judgment. Look, God will judge you by his law, and you will be found guilty of breaking the law. You will be found guilty of the sin of practicing lawlessness unless, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 28. Actually, let's read 27 again. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Look at my friends. The blessed hope of the church is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the big picture. And we need to be followers of Jesus who live with the big picture in mind. It's not about the calendar. It's about having a character of steadfast hope. It matters. It's a message that matters in this day and age for God's people. You know, you might say to yourself, you know, I'll deal with Jesus later. Yeah, I I don't want to live for Jesus now. I'll make that decision later. You know, when the church is gone, I'll make that decision later. Whatever. You know, I, I would say this to you. If you can't make the decision for Jesus now, what makes you think that you'll make that decision later? When the God's removed his restraining hand. We have a hope. And I encourage you to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That you turn in repentance from your sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him to be your Lord and Savior. We have a hope. Amen.